You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. How Objectivism Can Fuel Your Happiness by Tal Tzvani. Hello, everyone. So we'll start like we start every, every, uh, every year by doing an online survey. So here's how it goes. I'm going to give you uh, three options, like five-star system. If you didn't really enjoy uh, this conference, it didn't meet your expectations at all, uh, when I ask you to do something, you just st stay in your seat, you cross your hand, and you look at me angrily, okay? If it's like so-so, you stay in your seat and you clap a little bit, just a couple of times. If you, it's beyond your expectation and you loved it, you get to stand up and cheer as, as loud as you can. So from one to five, how did you enjoy this conference? <laughs> okay. Awesome. Awesome. Um, Lucy, where's Lucy? I think we'll give us like a 4.8. Awesome. So thank you very much. And in the same note, I want to uh, give a little, some thanks to, you know, people that really make this. Uh, I think Nikos did it um, from time to time. But just to understand how this thing works, um, there are people, and some of them are in this audience. I won't... Uh, name them, who actually um, trade value for value with you. Because what they want to see is what's happening here. Young minds getting exposed to those ideas and uh, in many different ways. And we don't know what you're going to do with those ideas. Maybe on one end you just go and live your life as a happier person. Maybe some of you end up uh, being on this stage. I always ask myself, who's going to be on this stage in 20 years, if not one of you guys? Right, so, and what, what's happening here at ARI is that we are a hub of people who want to see this. This is our mission, that's what we want to see. So I want to first and foremost thank all of you here, and you know who I'm talking about, that paid for all of this. So again, thank you for all the donors that made this possible. So help me thank them. And for all the adults here that pay the full price ticket, you know that some of that money goes to a sponsor, most of the students here that are on scholarships. So thank you for... And another thing, can the ARI staff stand up for a second, just for a minute? So let's thank... Here's Aaron. Um, I want to thank each and every one of you for, for being, uh, you know, working so hard. Uh, you know, all of, the, all of this is just, it starts with an idea of like, yeah, let's do an event and where should we do? And then Nikos, of course we need, need to do it in Athens and then everybody lights up and then uh, David takes it and makes it into a reality. So the next I want to thank the producers, uh, David, Azulai and the Teve team. Uh, all the ideas of to do it in the Lyceum and the production you're going to see tomorrow, all of that is made possible uh, by the team, amazing team that produces our events. And I want to thank Alexis and uh, the One Event team again for making all that possible here locally in, in Athens. So thank you, Alexis, wherever you are. Thank you. And last but not least is each and every one of you. I say that every time. It's it's an achievement to find yourself uh, in this room or bring yourself to this room. What each and every one of you had to do in order to get to this room is to find their way to those ideas and do what most people don't do, which is to understand that there's something profound and deep in Rand's thought and Rand's um, heroes. And you want to learn and understand it better because you understand that she gives us um, an integrated system of ideas that can be used for something to better your life, which is what I'm going to talk about. So I want to appreciate the fact and congratulate you for being here because I think it's an achievement. And some of you are, have been using those ideas for your entire lives. Uh, some people here met Ayn Rand herself and um, some of you are just starting your, your career in your life. So I hope everybody benefits and I want to see you next year. I'm going to announce at the end of this talk where we're going to be next year. And my ask is not only be there, but bring a friend onto. So this becomes bigger and bigger over time. So uh, with that, uh, I'll start my talk. And my talk is 
how objectivism can fuel your happiness. So my experience didn't start like Nikos. Nikos' story was much better than mine. Uh, but my story began where somebody that worked for me in a software company um, argued with me about the need for the existence of God. And we're sitting in my uh, drive, driveway, and uh, she actually drove me back home. And she says, there has to be a God. There's no way that the universe blah, 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 that was not created without God. And I said, no, you know, I never found uh, a reason for that. And I told her the story about me being six years old and my grandmother trying to force me to put the uh, Jewish yarmulke, you know, the kippah on my head. And I was arguing, I was saying, I do it if God shows up. And I remember going to my uncle's room and sitting there for about an hour trembling and asking God if he can show himself uh, maybe today um, because I'll be, you know, I will be the, the best follower and worshiper of God if he just showed up because I was serious. I was a serious kid. He didn't show up, so I gave back the yarmulke. And uh, she said, oh, you're, you know, you're so, you're stubborn and you're so principled. You're just like an Ayn Rand. And it's like, who? And, <laughs> and, then, and then she said, you don't know who Ayn Rand is? And I said, no. And um, actually, I remember seeing the fountainhead in my kibbutz. It, it was a commune that I grew up in, in Israel, a real communist uh, settlement. It was on the bed of one of my friends was the fountainhead by Ayn Rand, but I, I never picked it up. Uh, so anyway, she bought me Atlas Shrugged. It sat there. It's like, who's reading that book? It's 1,100 pages. It took me two, three months to get to it. But as, an, as I opened it, it was like something explode, exploded in my hands. I mean, I could not sit down reading that book because immediately I realized that it's not just about this story. There's something here that was waiting for me to read it. And literally, uh, if, you know, Nico's life was changed, my life was changed uh, forever. So I want to take you through that uh, story really quickly. And what you can take, um, I'm, I'm, my passion is to leverage objectivism to, towards happiness, individual happiness. So I'll do it pretty quickly. But before I do that, this is the time to move to my... Before I do that, I'm going to do some uh, rapid fire questions. So uh, please raise your hand if you are... If you, are, uh, if you know the answer or you think you know the answer. Uh, so I'm going to ask you, how many squares are in this picture? Okay. Try to estimate. Get a number in your head. Okay. Commit to that number. And I'm going to ask, you know, who knows it and see, see who got it right. Okay. So who thinks there's more than 2,000 squares? Okay. Who thinks there's, there are more than 4,000 squares? More than 4,000 here. Okay. Who thinks there's more than 5,000 squares? Okay. Who are the people that said more than 4,000 but didn't raise their hand when I said more than 5,000? Ooh, okay. Who thinks there's more than 4,500? One, two... Commit to a number, guys, don't you? <laughs> okay, four, five. Okay. You guys are, are amazing. There are 4,576 squares on this chart. Why? What does that mean? Exactly. This is, this is the number of weeks in your life you're going to live uh, up to 88 years. So the, the reason why that, that what? What can this number represent is the number of weeks in your life. If you live to 88, it's 4,576. And this is how the chart looks, right? I just uh, fooled you a little bit. This is 52 times 88. And uh, the reason why I showed it, and I want Nikos. Where is Nikos? Hey, Nikos, what does that say? What does that mean? Okay, so the question in Greek is, where are you? And what is the answer? Where are you? Here, right? You're here, right? I don't know if you know that, but you're here. And the next question is, why are you here and not anywhere else? Anyone wants to give me a good answer? Why are you here and not anywhere else? I don't know if you know, but in the entrance to the Booth School of Business in Chicago, one of the best business schools in the world, there's this 
Why are you here and not anywhere else? You choose to be here. Why are you here and not anywhere else? You want to be here. You can only be in one place, exactly. But the question is, why are you here? The best value you can be pursuing? Hopefully, because if not, you should be somewhere else, right? And that's a very deep question that I think is at the bottom of taking your life seriously. Why are you here, not anywhere else? Because you just marked, this is going to be a week adventure here, right? Coming to Greece and flying in. And you just mark, uh, you know, penciled in one of those squares. You took one 4,000 out of your life. And that's what life is all about. It's the accumulation of those. And some of you have used quite a bit of that already. So this is my attitude towards, towards life and to how serious I am with my life. And you'll, you'll see that one of the things I will talk about is being serious in other aspects, but being very serious about my life because I only have one life and it's going to end pretty soon. I, sometimes it's pretty depressing to go to a graveyard and you see, you know, 1917 to 9065. It's like, wow, that was short, right? And uh, it's like, yeah, that's what uh, human life looks like, or maybe hopefully a little longer. So I'm going to give you some takeaways. The first one is be purposeful in everything you do. The only limited resource you have is time. Use it well. Ask yourself every day or every week, why am I doing what, am I, what I'm doing? It's the only thing that I have. I'm, I'm spending my time on something. Let me ask you another simple question, rapid fire. What is philosophy for? Living? You, you can live without philosophy. Right? Not in a? Okay. So more like an animal. Okay. Everybody agrees? It's for? Living and living, hopefully, happy, right? Happiness. So, okay, let's, let's move forward. You know, simple question. So what is happiness? Achievement of values. Okay, any other ideas what happiness is? How does it look like? Who's happy here? Can you point to the people who are happy? Yeah, one guy is saying he's very happy. Okay. Not suffering, <laughs> that's, that's not happiness for me. Okay, so if you can't really define it clearly, as I can define what a microphone is or what a table or stand is, can you achieve it? Do you think it's easy to achieve something you can't clearly define? So my hypothesis is that most people walking this earth is trying to do something. They all tell you, yeah, I'm trying to be happy. But they don't know exactly what they're talking about. And I think what Rand gave me is a path to define to myself what happiness, my happiness exactly is or isn't, and what are the virtues needed to pursue it effectively. So another takeaway, define your definitions or clarify your definitions. When you are about to embark on something, in the tech world, and the business world, we always say, what does success look like? And it's, uh, I don't know. What does success look like? Just ask yourself, what am I trying to achieve? Can I define it? Can I visualize it? Can I concretize it? People dream. I, when I talk to people about their, their, you know, their dreams, it's a dream. They never took the time to make it real. What it will look like? Where will you live? With whom? How much money will you making? Who's going to employ you? How's it going to look like? What is your day going to look like? So clarify everything in your head in order to make it as real as possible so you can actually act on it. Are most people happy? What's your experience? No. no. But if you go out and ask them, and I know that there are a lot of TikTokers doing it, are you happy? What do they say? Yes. Why? What, what do you think is the dichotomy here or the, the, the gap between most people, your, your evaluation is they're not happy, but they say they are. What's the, where's, the, where's the gap? Complacency? 
they don't know what it is or what it means. They don't have a standard. What do you think is hap happiness is to the average person? Exactly. I'm not, I'm, I'm not dead. You know, I think it's Amanda and I did, a, did a, uh, an episode where she tells me a story of like somebody walking in the, in the supermarket and, and saying something like, you're above the ground, you know, it's enough. It's good enough. So you see everybody's like, yeah, I'm happy, but honestly, it's okay. I call it living the can't complain life. You know, you ask people, how are you? And they're like, I can't complain. It's like, uh, that's the best that they can do. But honestly, they are living kind of a hit or miss life because uh, for me, there's a lot of people that I see are doing amazing things, but their life is like ups and downs and they don't know where they are sometimes. I mean, the good ones, I've, I've spent five years in the Silicon Valley, saw amazing people creating amazing stuff, but still it was a sinus graph. Today I'm happy, but uh, depressed. Maybe after I sell my company, I don't know what I'm going to do and so on and so forth. It's a hit or miss because I don't think they have a true standard for what it means to be happy, not a measurement for success. So they end up, and this is what I'm trying to immune you against, right? Where's Amish? I have a, the, the immune right here for a midlife crisis. There is a, a vaccination, which is to not get to the point where you find yourself in the middle of your life, projecting forward to the end of your life, saying it's going to be like what it was. And that's what I was starting to experience, I was 39 turning 40 when my employee gave me Atlas Shrugged and I felt like, is this it? The whole thing about life, it's like mortgage and a, you know, an okay job. I had a great job. I was a VP in a very big company. I was, it was okay, it was sometimes interesting, but most of Mondays I was like, ah, another week. So you end up with, with this lack of enthusiasm. Um, not much to look forward to and losing the spark, what Ayn Rand called the spark of, of living. And then I read about this guy. This is Howard Rourke from The Fountainhead. I read Atlas Shrugged and it was amazing. But then The Fountainhead really kicked my butt. I mean, seeing this guy and his character and the way he perceived life was the opposite of the people I saw in the street. He knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly what he wanted. He wasted no extra minute on nothing that meant, uh, didn't mean something to him. When Tui comes to him and asks him, the guy who needs, you know, wants to destroy him, so what do you think of me? What does he say? But I don't. That blew my mind. I mean, I had to close the book and go lie down for about an hour just to soak that one in to see that's what it looks like. That's what it means to, to live your, your own life, to be an egoist, to think about yourself as the center of this universe and life as the standard of value, my life. And if you're someone I don't care about, I don't care about you. I don't think about you. And I was not like that. I was thinking about stuff that's going to happen to me. I think about people I don't like. I was thinking about the politics in my, my company. All of that was consuming me. And I knew I needed to change. So I did a journey from this, everything's fine, or, you know, I was, I was working, to, everybody's like, I'm going to work till I retire, so I can retire earlier. You know, like I can rest more. And, uh, or safety, a lot of safety. I just, I'm working to get, as, to be as safe as possible. You know, I, I, it's hard to say, but uh, a lot of the friends I meet around me at my age are just, about one thing, let's retire safely, make sure that there's enough money in the bank so we don't run out of money. That's our goal in life. I'm talking about being a hero. It's not me that I talk, it's actually Ayn Rand taught me to think at the level of heroism, to live the life that I'm proud of to the point where there's almost no regrets. I want to see my last day would be something like I lived to the maximum of my abilities. I've experienced so much. I've used my mind and my body. I traveled. I, I met people. I created. Uh, I brought value to this world. I spent the time on things that mattered to me. It was great. Bye. And just go. That's it. That's the life I want to live. And I think that's the, the power of Rand's heroes. 
uh, where she shows us how, how, how that looks like in reality. There's a little book called Turning Pro that I uh, read a while back. And I, there's an analogy there that really captured my imagination. He talks about living two types of life. You can choose to live an amateur life or a professional life. If you're an amateur, you can live an easy, comfortable, safe, predictable life. Not, nothing rocks your boat too much. You take a safe job, a safe career. You know that somebody's going to hire you. They pay you a paycheck. You do whatever needs to be done, and you're fine with it. Great. And he says, go ahead. Live your amateur life because a professional life is hard, demanding, risky, messy, unknown. Why be a professional? Anyone has an idea why anyone would not want to live here and not here? Why would we want to work hard and be like a top athlete versus just be a normal guy who just... Just raise your hand so I can know who's talking. Yeah. Achieve your values. But I can achieve some values around here, right? Just not as hard as possible. Exciting or interest, yes. <laughs> but why? Yes. To build the best character that you can build. Why? It's hard. It's rocky. It's messy. It's unpredictable. It's going to cost you with suffering and, and, you know, it's going to be hard. Why do it? Yeah, so you are that person. So what? By why, why work so hard? Why, why not just settle for an amateur life? Yeah. The payoff. What payoff? You're going to get more money? Happiness. Okay. You're, You're right. <laughs> That's a boring life. Ed? To realize one's potential. And that leads me to the next slide. He says, go ahead. Live your amateur life, but pay the price. And the price is what he calls living in the shadow. And it's a brilliant analogy. Because I think that this is exactly the price that an amateur pays. Knowing that they're living in a shadow of something. What is casting the shadow? What do you think is the shadow? Their potential. Because you know... How smart you are. You know what's available to you. You see other heroes around you doing what they're doing. You see that you could do this. Right? But you choose not to. And that is a heavy price to pay. It's more than just boredom. I don't know who said boredom. It's living every moment of your life knowing that you choose not to live up to your potential. That's like living in the shadow. Yes, going out to the sun is risky. You get burnt. You fall on your face. You try again. But the alternative is not that great. So, and he goes on, and which I think is brilliant. He says, uh, people that are amateurs, they optimize for money, for instant gratification, for safety, for distractions, prestige, contentment, and even success. Pros do not optimize for success. They optimize for passion. They optimize for connection for authenticity, finding their own voice, self-expression, creativity, and excitement. That's what they optimize for. I don't want to be the number one in the world just to be number one and retire. I'm doing it because I love the game. I can't play enough. My hero, Roger Federer, just to watch him play is amazing. And I remember he released a, a video of how he trains. For an hour and a half, it was better than watching a match. The thinking about what how, the hand-eye coordination with, with his coach throwing the balls at him in different angles just to develop uh, the, the movement and the orientation of the eyes and the hands was brilliant. And then him hitting around in all kinds of different moves was amazing. So another takeaway is define your standard. Are you going to be a pro or are you going to be an amateur? If you're going to be a pro, what kind of pro are you going to be? What are you going to be? The, try to be the best you can be. Everybody's like, best in the world. Maybe, but 
It's not about being best in the world. People who take professional tennis know that the most chances they will never hit the top 100. They still do it. They dedicate their lives to it. So you have to define your standards. And the question that I want to leave with all of you is that what is your standard? What are you going to try to aim for? And how, what is the price you're going to pay for it? Okay, so I created this thing called the Happiness Team. It's, it's really a, a workshop that tries to apply everything that I uh, struggled and succeeded with for over a decade and really try to systemize the process uh, of taking everything that I've learned from objectivism into, into actually living it and, and doing things in, in, in reality. Because Rand's heroes give you the inspiration, but there's more knowledge that you need to uh, accumulate in order to actually act it out, to know how to make it happen. And it doesn't matter if you want to be an academic, an intellectual, or an um, aviation mechanic. I don't know what, what lights your fire. So there are about six questions that I ask in that, in that workshop. What, what, okay, what is that? So actually, sorry, before I do that, uh, just to, to give you an idea, Ayn Rand with objectivism gave me a complete framework on how to think about who I am, what I am, and then how to apply myself in the world. Before that, for 40 years, I was, I was a kid with a lot of potential. And they did great things. I was successful in many ways, but I never had the framework that led me to where I am today, which is I consider myself a highly happy person. So uh, through the fiction and the nonfiction I, I've, I've, that I've read, everything connected into this uh, uh, definition that she gave me that I spent, I think, months thinking about, which is happiness is that state of consciousness which proceeds from the achievements of one's values. And specifically, she's talking about a state of consciousness. It's not I'm waking up on a Monday and I'm happy and then on Wednesday I'm unhappy. It's a state of consciousness. It's a prolonged state of mind that comes as a result of a process that I'm doing, which is I'm achieving my values. So the way my uh, engineering mind works is that I need to break it down into a process. So I read it backwards. And the way I read it is like, first she said something called values. What is that? How do I choose them? What are they? And then I need to go out and achieve them, fulfill them, and only then I get this thing, happiness, which I can't control directly because it's a, it's, a, it's a result of a process. So what she's saying basically is I have to discover this thing called values to define what my values are. That's not easy. That's the strategic question. We always think in business terms, that is the strategy of your life. What are you going to pursue, right? Not the how, that's tactics. What, why? And then you have to act. What she says is that you cannot will yourself to happiness. You cannot sit in your basement imagining a world where you are doing something and like, oh, that would be great, I'm happy today. You have to go out to the world and do what needs to be done in order to, to do that. And another thing she says, which I people miss sometimes, is enjoy it, celebrate it, appreciate it, right? In a way that, you know, there's, there's stupid ways to do, that, to do that, but there's smart way to do it. To really acknowledge that you are a happy person and enjoy that. Enjoy every day that goes by to say, I'm happy. I'm doing what I am supposed to be doing. That was my plan. I'm acting, acting on it. So I want to give you um, the, uh, the question. And <laughs> before I do that, um, there's a question. So, okay, so what do you do? There's a word in Hebrew that it sounds like a Greek word. It's called tachlis. And the people who speak Hebrew in the, in the room are smiling because I don't know. It doesn't translate to any language. And it's so good because it says the following. It says, okay, now that you've told me all of that, what do I actually do with that information? That is tachlis. Just one word. <laughs> tachlis. All you have to do is one, to say one word, and I guess that's what you're asking yourself right now. Okay, you gave me all that. What do I do with it? So tachlis. I'm going to give you the tachlis. The theory into practice. So in the happiness team, by the way, everything I'm saying is going to be on this website. There's a 70-page workbook. Self-explanatory. You can download it and start working with it, or you can do one of our workshops that we do every other month. You can talk to Amanda or 
someone from my team, and uh, that's where you can, uh, you can learn more about it. Six questions. What am I? Who am I? What do I want? How do I get it? What's stopping me? And what's the point? Six questions. So let's break down each one of those questions. What am I? Morley, what, what are you? <laughs> it takes you too much time to, to answer. <laughs> You're a father. No, no, in the most generic way. You are a squirrel. No, it's a <laughs> you are a human. You're not a squirrel. Um, one of the things that really uh, grabbed me with Rand's um, integrated system of ideas is that everything is explained to the most fundamental experiences that you have as a human being. I'm not a squirrel. I love squirrels and I watch them all day. I don't know what it is about them. They captivate my attention because they are so squirrels. I mean, there's nothing like that in the world. They look like rats, but they're not rats and they're playing all the time and they're they have a nature. And I was imagining myself, that, so they were born, right, in some kind of a hole in a tree. Is there a classroom where the mom, mother, a squirrel just said, all of you sit down, let me explain to you how, what it means to be a squirrel and how to live a good life like a squirrel, right? There's no such school. How do they get that? How do those little squirrely things move around the, the, the forest, collecting nuts and knowing what to do and finding a shelter, a hole in a, in a tree, and uh, mates and so on. How do they know? How do they have their own morality so clear to them? Right? It's all burnt into their hardware. They don't have to think. It's there. And then you have this creature, useless creature. You know, you drop it in the forest. What happens? It dies. Does it know how to live? Does it know how to produce what it needs to live? It's so unique and. Um, other than a couple of instincts, it has nothing. And yet this creature is controlling this world with the power of what? The power of the mind. What Ayn Rand says, man's essential characteristic is his rational faculty. Man's mind is his basic means of survival, his only means of gaining knowledge. That is what the squirrel of us, you know, in us is all about. It's about the ability to think, it's the ability to integrate, ability to, to, to create concepts and use them and imagine what I can create with my mind, my hands and, and with language. It's all about reasoning. And with that, um, I think that that is the means, that is the path towards what I, my definition, which is happiness is really a state of human thriving. So the real question is, if you're a human, can we define what a state of thriving for you looks like? This is happiness to me. If I were to kind of, it's a state of human thriving. Okay, my life is going on a good path. You see it in, when I look in the forest next to my house, they're like skinny, um, not so, um, you know, um, weak squirrels. And there are like big squirrels that are way more dominant, faster, look much more much better. And you see, this is a thriving squirrel. And this is a skinny squirrel that is kind of has a couple of scars. Part of his tail is missing. He's not doing that well. So what does it mean to be happy and to thrive as a human being? And the best way for me to explain is to express what I'm feeling uh, on an ongoing basis. The first thing I, I can tell you about being happy is that I have a, the sense of knowing who I am. Knowing myself. I know how I react to things. I know what I love. I know what kind of uh, people I love to be around, what people make, make me mad, kind of people make me mad, what kind of environments I love being in and what I hate being in. Um, what bores me? What excites me? Um, what flavors of ice cream I love? I pay attention to this thing. Because I am the object of my project called, you know, Make Tal Happy. And if I don't know who I am and I'm very interested and curious about how I react to everything that happens to me, how will I know to make myself happier? So this deep sense of knowing myself. And I know what I want. I know those things. And I told you, I take a lot of time to define exactly what it is. It's not a vague, I want to be successful. 
I know exactly what it's going to look like. I know how to get it. I've developed skills. I know what the path from where I am to where my vision is. It's not going to be easy. You know, creating an Ayn Rand University with no real idea of how to run a university is, you know, it's not, it's not an easy task, task to take on. But I have a vision. I, I know what I want it to be in 10 years, right? So, and I trust myself to get it. And I'm getting it. I see myself actually doing it. I'm not procrastinating. I'm not wasting time. Sometimes I do. And then I don't feel that good about myself. But I know that, I, that I'm the kind of person that gets what he wants. And the outcome of all of that is some kind of a conclusion that I would, I would phrase as, I know how to live as me. I figured it out. And I'm trying to get better and better at it. And another thing is that I'm good at living as me. I'm not just, I know, but I am actually doing what needs to be done to make this organism happy and thriving. So a longer definition of happiness for me is, is it's really a state. A state of happiness is a prolonged state of mind that is a result of an objective, strategic evaluation of one's efficacy, effectiveness, and success in achieving their rational goals or rational values. So that is kind of a human view uh, of the question, what are you? This is how I can describe to you as, uh, how humans thrive, or what is that state of thriving that I'm talking about. But the question that each and every one of you should be asking yourself is, who am I? And how do you answer that? How do you answer that? If I told you, my name is Tal, I'm 52, I live in Alpharetta, Georgia, I have three kids and a wife, and I... Um, you know, I, I used to work for software, and now I work for a non-for-profit. Do you know me? Okay. What if I told you, hi, my name is Tal. I was always excited about ideas. I love playing the drums. I love racing cars. I love building products. I, I love software when it's really, it really works. I couldn't get enough of, uh, of um, Formula One racing. I couldn't get enough of reading books about... Um, you know, ideas. I'm actually, when we, we, get, we get too deep into uh, history of philosophy, I get a little bored because I, I know that there are a lot of philosophers who got many things wrong, and I don't, I don't really care about how they got things wrong. I care about what's right. This is why Ayn Rand fascinates me, and Aristotle fascinates me, but all the wrong ones, not so much. Um, um, and, and I can go on and on, right? Do you know me a little bit better, Robert, now? Why? Because I now talked in terms of values. So the answer to the question, who are you, is basically, what are your values? And by values, I mean anything that you want, like Ayn Rand said, to gain or keep. Anything. It could be, and, and I can, can actually translate it to the question, what do you love? That's an easier way to ask yourself, who am I? It's all the things you love doing, the, the work you love doing, the play, the learn, the hobbies, the fan acti fun activities, the experiences, the people, the types of relationships, the type of people you love in your life, um, the places you like to be, the trips you like to take, the hikes, the things you own, the property you own, the tools, the technology, the gadgets, everything that you love, everything that you find meaning in is a value. But how do you make that list? if not by carefully being curious about what makes me tick, what's meaningful to me. It could be the opposite for other people. It could be the most boring thing to other people. I start talking to people about objectivism, they fall asleep. They talk to me about their, I don't know, I don't know, what, 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 in the poker table, I usually fall asleep because they talk about politics of, of, where they have no idea what they're talking about. I find it boring. Right? So the one thing I would, I'll give you some takeaways. The one thing I would do in order to start paying attention to what your values are is to start mapping all the good things in life, all the things that make life worth living. It could be anything and make it into a hobby. Put this three column table next to your bed. And before you go to sleep, just write one thing of what's good about life. What is the good thing? What does it mean to me? Try to explain why that thing means something to you. 
sometimes you'll find that you're spending a lot of time in things that you don't really, are not really meaningful to you. And then you should ask yourself, why am I spending one of my weeks on that activity if it's not showing up in my good things list? And then a very hard question to ask, because this is a self-knowledge question, is what does it say about me? What does it mean that I am the kind of person that likes drumming or likes racing or likes managing a non-for-profit that you know, tries to propagate a philosophy and I get so excited about that, that I like to meet like-minded people and talk about ideas that are very abstract. I love strategy. I like managing people. What does it say? Who, who is that person? And try to develop this view, almost like an external view, like, wow, that says a lot about this guy. And that doesn't reconcile with that. So why, why am I doing this? I don't know. And then a change needs to happen in your life. So I created what I call a value galaxy, which is uh, over a long period of time, I, I started using a lot of sticky notes on my wall of all the things that I find meaning in. And what I realized that they have a lot of things that are connected. So I call them value themes. I started identifying value themes in my life. Whereas like, I am the kind of guy who likes uh, philosophy, truth, and abstract ideas. And I like uh, managing people, or I like music, uh, and everything has to do with being very competitive in, a, in individu individualistic sports. That's the kind of person I am. So having that map is my way, the, my solution to really know myself. So that's a value galaxy. So the takeaway from this is become a valuer. Try to be a person that wakes up every day and says, what's good about this world? What can I do more of that I love? And that explains why uh, uh, Howard Rourke wakes up every day and is like, I don't think about TUI. It's not in my value galaxy. <laughs> so it's architecture. It's my work. And um, it's almost like de developing another sense of I'm going to focus on the things that bring meaning to my life. Those are the most important thing. The rest is not important. Of course, you have to do, you have to pay your taxes. I have to pay my taxes. I'm actually late in paying my taxes this year, but I have to do it. I know that there's going to be a day of my life that I'm going to spend on doing my taxes. I don't like it. I hate it. I hire other people to do it, but I have to answer some questions. So, but... I know that every day, most of the time, most of the year, most of my life is going to be dedicated to things that I choose. What do you want? How do you answer that question? Well, actually, it's a subset of what you love. So I took all of the things that you can love, and I thought about the fact that they're all competing for one thing, which is your time and your energy. But you have different types of energy, so you can pursue multiple uh, values in the same time. So there's your career-oriented values, which take most of your day, right? And then, uh, let's keep the wealth for a second. There's the relationships, the romantic, the uh, family, the friendships, the professional relationships, all of that, all of your connections with other people, that takes some energy. Everything that has to do with health and rejuvenation, your hobbies, what you like to do in your free time, to keep your body healthy, all of that takes up some, some time. And then wealth is a very interesting realm of values because it's the energy that you store in order to go pursue your values. By the way, I'll just uh, skip to uh, something that, again, I read with Ayn Rand for the first time. Everybody says time is money, right? Ayn Rand in one of her essays says, money is time. And what she means by that is that money is just a tool to buy you the time to go do what? Pursue your values. Now, if you go back to this slide, one of the things I realized is so amazing. This is a chart that has those four domains that I ask people to put their top values in each domain, is that if you hate your work right now, it's still a value. It pays the bills. So it's a value in your life. And if you want to be doing something else, but it cannot pay the bills, okay, go create a creative value that doesn't pay the bills. Stop hating your work because, oh, the work is actually paying all the bills. And develop a transition plan where what you do for, uh, as your career pursuit can pay the bills or not. If you're retired, you know, who cares? This pays my bills. I can do whatever I want. So this separation of money and, and time. So the, really the takeaway here 
is organize and prioritize your values and don't confuse time and money. A lot of young people is like, yeah, I need to make money. I need to make money. No. You need the time to go pursue what really matters for you, to you. And if you can make the money doing it, great. If you're not, solve that problem and then go do what, and hopefully you can uh, develop the skills to get someone to pay you for what you really love. How do you get it? In the happiness team, we call it a spotlight value. I believe in the Crow epistemology, which means you cannot hold on to too many things. Because I ask you, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I'm learning, I'm doing that, and I'm creating a new company, and then I'm moving to uh, another country. And I was, it's like, really, how can one focus on doing something seriously by doing five of them? So in every point in time, I define for myself what I call it is my spotlight value. It's the thing that is most important to me. You know, most of the time it's in the career domain of values. But I really do believe that you have to focus. Really focus. There's a reason why focus is so important to human beings. We can't hold a lot here, right? So I wake up every day and I have a list of things that I say, those are the things that are going to take my attention today. And there has to be a really good reason if they're not. If they're not. So another take is focus. And I have all of the things that I do in order to plan how I'm going to get it. So always, and I'm rushing a little bit because I'm running out of time, have a plan. There's a whole, again, in that workbook, a lot of questionnaires that can ask you the right questions. Have a plan. Know where you're going. Don't like, oh, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to drop my job and I'm going to do something completely different and just let's see if it works. It's not going to work if, not, if you don't really have a plan. And... Again, something I, I will just touch on is usually what I see is stopping people is themselves. It's this um, belief that if they'll take a step forward, they'll fall into abyss or some kind of a pitless canyon. And then somebody's going to, some monster is going to come and, <laughs> and kill them because they're, they're going to fail. They're going to be ridiculed. Uh, they're going to be poor. Uh, there's a lot of uh, fear involved in going after your values. So I don't know what it is about my older, elder son. He, he, you know, he came to this world and as soon as he could say a word, he said, I want to be a character, character designer without saying it. And he's a character designer today. It was very obvious to him. He never thought about anything else. He won't consider any other thing. It's just, of course, that's what I'm going to do, right? And then my other kids, he's like, don't know, Right? So some people are born like, yeah, of course, you do what, what you love. And some people, it uh, take, takes a lot of courage. Um, so I won't talk about this whole emotional mechanism. You, you can read it um, maybe in, when you do the, uh, the workbook. But Ayn Rand has a whole explanation that was just world-changing to me. To understand what emotions are and what they are not. How to use them. And how not to use them. Again, I'm sorry I'm, I'm jumping, but I will say one thing which is an example of how to deal with emotion. So I wanted a short story. So I'm in the airport hugging my uh, middle child, my daughter, that decided at the age of 18 after uh, graduating that she wants to go to Israel and enlist to the Israeli army. Now, like, I was fighting her for like six months, like the worst idea ever. I don't know why I can open doors for you in the Silicon Valley. You can do so many things. You're so charismatic. You're so smart. And then as I uh, was driving back, I was really, I was like, uh, emotions were washing me on the way back home. So here's an idea. Here's a tactic on how to deal with your emotions. This is a seven-page introspection guide that I wrote for myself, and I... I I will read it to you. It's very small, so I'll read it to you. So I, the first question is, what is happening? Give me the facts, right? So Shiri, my daughter, left back to Israel. She teared up. I did too. I felt bad after she left. I know that. that that's the fact, okay? The second question is, what do I feel? What kind of feeling do I have? And in the back of that workbook, there's a list of like, I don't know, 60, 70 types of feelings. So you can uh, know how uh, nuanced your feelings could be. So I, I wrote, I feel frustrated. And then it occurred to me that I'm not just frustrated. I'm all, also feeling a little bit of helplessness. I'm helpless. I can't do anything about it. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so what's the next question? Why do I feel it? 
what is the cause? What is, or what is the need at stake? Okay? So what I wrote is, I still don't accept her decision to join the Israeli army. I think it's a mistake. I want her to be happy. And I don't think she's taking the path that is right for her. That is the reason why I'm frustrated and feel a little helpless. Now here comes the real game changer, which it means, okay, now you see and you're seeing the, the, the reason for your uh, feeling, but what's behind it? What's the reason? What is the thought that generated this feeling? Or as I, I ask myself, what is the thought or value judgment behind the feeling? So I wrote, I know what's good for her. I know what's good for her. That's why I'm feeling helpless. My advice is the right one for her. I want to direct and have impact on her journey. I don't like it when she doesn't listen to my advice. That's the reality of the reason, the value judgment, why I got uh, that feeling and not a, a different feeling. So now I'm staring at the value judgment behind that emotion. Now I can judge that judgment. And I ask myself, is it true? Is it rational? Is it objective? And my answer was no. I don't know what's good for her. I think I know her, but she knows herself so much better than I. She, she does, right? I'm 50, she's 19. I can't project my life values and experience on her. She needs to pave her own path. I can't make her happy, only she can. I need to do the opposite, encourage her to make her own decisions and be supportive. I should voice my opinion only if she asks for it. So what do you do when you realize that your emotion doesn't make any sense? What do you do next? Text her and say that I love her and that I'm there for her. Hold back the, on judgmental comments and uh, initiate conversation with her and not let the relationship deteriorate because it was already deteriorating. And then the last question I asked myself, what did I learn from this? Because I have a mistake in my head. It generates emotions that are not aligned to what's good for me. If I would act on those emotions, I would completely destroy the, the relationship with her and I would be on the wrong for doing it. So respect the sovereignty of other people over their own lives, especially the people that are close to you. And of course, I wrote much more. But this gives you an idea of the fact that you should not act on emotion. You should act on the reason behind the emotion. Some, sometimes, and I'll give you another example. I came back after a great win of a software sales, and I was so excited about it that I didn't understand why for a week. I thought I'm such a great salesperson, but I realized a week later it was because of something completely different. It was because they asked me to present a whole story about my software without showing a demo, and I created a, new, a whole story that made everybody laugh. And... I said, wow, it's so great that I'm not acting on the fact because I, I thought I'm going, to, I'm going to double down on sales. Well, I was like, no, I don't like sales. I like storytelling. So even if it's negative or positive, don't take your emotions as a primary. I call it the 100%, 0% mistake, which is either act on your emotion because it's there, 100% emotion, or what we do sometimes, like I'm going to ignore it. It's not there. I'm not feeling anxious. I'm not feeling frustrated. Just... And then people collapse in other ways, psychologically. So, uh, as my good friend Gina Golin says, feelings or emotions are, are evidence. So suppressing, the, suppressing them is like ignoring evidence. You got something going in your head, some kind of a value judgment. And now you got a signal with a shape of an emotion. So act, act, act on it rationally. So uh, the takeaway is introspect. Develop a mind that can look inside of what's going on. Don't just act on things whimsically. Slow down. If you find yourself in a quiet room with a piece of paper, writing something about what's going on in your life, you're on the right track. And lastly, what's the point? It's another tragedy of a lot of people that I know that do everything right. They're amazing. But because of philosophical errors, they never celebrate. They don't know how to get the gold coins of doing everything right, choosing their values, pursuing their values, succeeding. You know, I, I was in a conference of very rich people lately, a weekend with people 
that most of them have private jets, okay, and hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank. You know what the two main topics were in the agenda? Can you guess? Depression, you got one right, and addiction. And we're talking about, I mean, those people are like poster childs of success. They have everything. I mean, they talk about their yachts and their private jets and where they went and so on. And there was one lady that was traumatic, traumatic for me to hear her. She was so successful. And she said, yeah, I went from nothing to, and I was struggling. And then I made a million. And then I said, I need to make five million. And I made five million. Then my goal was 10 million. So I made 10 million. It's like, how much are you, what's your next goal? It's 50. Where are you now? 47. Great. And it's like, and, and then at, just before they end, he asked, so what do you do for fun? She said, oh, when I'm really, really exhausted, I take my private jet, load it with champagne, get all my friends, we land somewhere, we get wasted for the weekend, and then I go back to work. Great life. <laughs> so what I do in order to recognize myself, I, 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 it's amazing how fast we forget the good things. So every week, at the end of the week, I write down all the good things I've done this week. And I have lists going back to 2013. Every week, I, if, if I get lost, like, oh, I feel a little down, I open one of the weeks and like, wow, I completely forgot. I took my daughter to a NASA camp and we spent the whole weekend together simulating uh, moon landings. It was so great, I forgot about it. I, I, it's not in my, it was not in my memory anywhere. And so, and then I feel good about myself. You have, you're doing so many amazing things. The fact that you're here and you're learning. Go back home, write down everything that you've learned and how much you've gained from this week. Just so one day you'll come back to it's like, wow, that was a great decision to go to the Iron Conference, right? You'll forget about it if you don't appreciate the fact that this is how you appreciate yourself. So those are the six questions. Um, the takeaways celebrate. And with that, I'll end. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> so I'll take uh, questions if you have. I know it might uh, open, a <laughs> but if you have any questions, I'll be happy to answer. Go ahead. Um, one, of your, one of your crucial questions that's part of your program is, what do I want? And I wanted to ask, why is the question, what do I want, rather than, what can I do to improve my life? Because the broader, because the yeah, first what one, if, you, could what want, if, you could want yeah. things that are uh, wrong. True. But one of the premises here is that you've, you've done the work to uh, identify, and it's true, I didn't cover it, but that your values are rational values. One of the things we're doing in the uh, plotting of the value galaxy is to identify several problems, which is values that are not yours, that you've inherited and uh, you've been second-handed in choosing them. And a lot of it's like, why is this here? I mean, this, uh, I mean, this friendship or the time I spend with some extended family that is not really important to me. So there is an assumption that your values are good for your life. And my answer to you is like, if it's not what you want, so why bother? Because another thing you wanna, uh, uh, be aware or, or be careful from is like duty premise, which means, oh, I need to do this. And I was like, why do you need to do this? I had this wonderful conversation with my 16-year-old. Uh, she said, oh, because oh, she's miserable at school, doing like four or five hours of work, work you know, homework every day. And I said, she, and I said, why are you doing this? And because it's stupid homework. Don't do it. And I said, because I have to. I said, no, you don't. <laughs> and we had this really meaningful conversation about. She can choose not to do this, and nothing will happen. Um, so before you take on a lot of duty, just ask the question, is, is it mine? Do I want it? And wanting, for me, it's at the base of, you know, otherwise, why? Why bother? Thanks. Do you have any advice on discovering values that require a significant time investment before you realize you value it or not. So what do you mean? Explain that again to me. What's the problem? Sure. So I feel like um, 
So in my life as an example in particular, uh, I went to get, get closer to the mic. So it's, oh, yeah. Is, is that better? Yeah. Okay. Um, so in my life in particular, I went to school to make video games because I loved video games as a kid and computers. And it seemed like, why not? That's, that yeah. seems what I'm into. Yeah. Uh, it turns out making them is something completely new. Just <laughs> playing them. Yeah. Right. And, um, it took about a year for me to feel like I had a grip on it and then realize, oh, I actually do like this, but it took quite a bit of time to do that. And mm -hmm. I feel like it, it might take a, a significant time investment sometimes to discover like what, a real value and I'm not sure how to that's, go. That's a good question. Um, one of the things I think people that are young do not appreciate that part of living is discovery. Uh, we always think that, oh, there needs to be a goal. Uh, I have to choose my major and then complete my major and then get the uh, certificate and go work. No, I, the, if I had to relive my late teens and early 20s, I would have a completely different mindset. I'm going to take five, seven years, maybe even more, to figure out things, to know myself, to know what I love. Because it's amazing to me that at like, I don't know, 18, 20, 21, 24, doesn't matter. You don't know much about you as an adult, and you don't know much about the world. You don't know what's possible, right? And you're expected to make a big decision about both. And so my advice, again, not telling my 19-year-old what to do, but if I could advise you on what I would tell my, my, my version of my 19-year-old, you like computer games? Go work for a computer company for a little while, ask to clean the floors, I don't know, in order to see what it looks like to, to live in that environment. Just understand what type of jobs do they have. You can design, you can program, you can do the 3D, the 2D, the gameplay, you can do the story. There's so many things, right? And you wouldn't know that. So the first thing I told my 16-year-old is like, go work. And he, they, we found this workshop uh, where he, he could actually work with other uh, people in developing games, right? And he realized it's like, oh my God, there's a whole world of character design that I thought it's just character, you know, and there's a 3D version of it and a 2D version of it. Every time we have a 3D uh, class, I get, I, I fall asleep in the 2D and like, wow, this is amazing. So he realized it doesn't work. And it took him a, uh, about a year and a half. And then he came back home. He's like, I wasted a year and a half. And I said, Ron, what do you mean you wasted? You now know exactly what you want and what you don't want. That's a huge step forward. That is should be the definition of the value you're pursuing, figuring out what exactly lights my fire. So I wouldn't look at it as like, oh, I'm going to waste so much time figuring it out, right? Uh, just make sure that the orientation stays there because what I loved about that, he realized because he was like so excited about 3D and started to program in 3D just to realize it's not what he really wants. And I was so happy that he now narrowed it. And when he went out to the job market, they offered him, I think, like five uh, jobs in 3D and two jobs in 2D that were less and he took that because he knew exactly what he wanted to do. Um, so I see that as a discovery process. My orientation is like, yeah, well, if I don't know what to want, now my job is to go figure out what I want. So I, I have like a, you know, a, a sense of direction where it could be. So I go and surround myself with those type of people and try to figure out. So my orientation towards that is like, go discover. It's part of the process of, you know, discovering your values and then pursuing them. Because what you don't want to do is just waste a decade, you know, just, yeah, that job was not something. Maybe I'll try something else. Okay, we're done or one more? Two minutes. Okay, I'll go quick. Um, I have a question about the fiction. So I think that a lot of the times being able to look at the world benevolently means that you can trust that you'll get the acknowledgement you deserve from your work when being productive. So my question is, what's the difference between Howard Rourke and Richard Halley? They both needed acknowledgement from the world for the work that they did. Um, but whereas while both of them didn't get it, Rourke still continued pursuing his path versus Halley gave up and he shrugged. So. What's the difference between, is it a difference in their mindsets towards happiness? Is it a difference in self-esteem? What was it? Yeah. 
I can speak about Rourke because I feel I know Rourke much more than I, I thought about Halley's motivation. But I can tell you it's very clear to me that Rourke, as he says, I, have, uh, I, I don't build to have customers. I have customers in order to build. I mean, the, the reward should eventually be there, hopefully, because you're creating value to someone and a rational value is a value that is rationally promoting human life, as we heard you know, earlier. If you're creating something that should be helping other lives, there should be a reward rationally. And eventually, as you know, it comes. But that's not the motivation. And uh, it's, I saw that in spades in the Silicon Valley where I met someone who's like um, trying his like 13th idea where he actually literally got every idea funded and then folded the company. And I was like, how are you still going? I mean, you're crushed. Who would be after the 13th attempt? He said, no, I know. I just, I don't know how to do it. He started very, very young um, and he failed. He didn't know how to build a company. He got better and better. And now he's a multimillionaire. Um, so, but it was clear that what he wanted to do is to create that kind of application in this case that was, that made sense. He wanted to create a marketplace and he just pushed and pushed. And, and I think the, in the first the market was not there for him, so he was way before his time. Um, but he didn't, he didn't care less. He woke up every day saying, this is a great idea, and I think it'll add a lot of value, and eventually it, it worked. So what needs to drive you is not the reward. It'll come. You see in, in my slide, it's pretty, it's, it's not, you know, it's not nothing, uh, uh, it's, it's very hard to understand that, but you should not aim for success in the deep sense of the world, word, you are driving from your passion and excitement about this, hoping for success. And so if, if, if you ask yourself, am I doing the right thing? And I say, I think this is a very generic thing. Am I doing the right thing? Is ask yourself, would I do it even if nobody paid, paid for it? You know, if I, would I do it again and again and again? Do I have the motivation to do it? And if the answer is no, ask yourself, what else could I be doing that I would do even if they didn't pay me to do it? Because eventually, if you're so passionate about it, uh, my assumption, you'll be very good at it. And then eventually, somebody will pay, for it, pay you for it. And that's the difference between living in the shadow and living in, in the light. So thank you. With that, I'll end. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to einran.org.